Happy Sunday to you. If uh, you're with us online, know that we're glad you're with us. If you're here for the first time, know we're also glad you've decided to worship with us today. Uh, Before we dive back into the book of Philippians... I wanted to give each of you a quick update uh, on the $5,000 gift we were uh, notified about two weeks ago uh, to use strategically for gospel advancement. You know, as we, as I mentioned, um, you know, the church planning network we're a part of here uh, chose our church as one of the churches to designate this money to for strategic purposes for gospel advancement in our city. We've been thinking over this, uh, knowing that we've been entrusted with with resources to leverage for God's kingdom. You know, we've thrown out a, a few different ideas And we may uh, use it for a few different things, but the first thing we're going to do in November is to provide each uh, family or unit or person five small gifts, uh, probably something like a a small uh, gift card with a New City uh, note card, just as a small and simple blessing to give to your community from our church, uh, just to take to a coworker or a friend, a neighbor uh, that you've been praying for, uh, just letting them know, hey, we know it's been a hard year. Uh, we want them to know that they're cared for, that they're valued, uh, that they're being, and then we want to pray for them. Uh, and then we want, to ask, we want you to ask how you can pray for them and also how our church can pray for them. Uh, and then you'll write it down uh, and then you'll commit to pray for them individually and then also in our groups. And then you're going to follow up with them and, and tell them uh, you've been praying for them. You know, maybe write up a, a follow-up card or, or a simple text or uh, a small note. Letting, you, letting them know that you've been praying for them and then just kind of ask them about it. And the hope is that this would, uh, these, would, these would lead, these spiritual conversations kind of surrounded around prayer will lead into gospel conversations. Or maybe uh, just as a simple invitation to our church, uh, maybe for something uh, to lay the groundwork for our, our Christmas service that we're going to have December 20th. And, or maybe even uh, for our one-year birthday at the end of January. Uh, we'll, we'll, resource you guys, we'll resource you guys with everything you'll need to make this happen. Um, and we'll, we're going to start with five uh, gift cards per family or couple or, or person. And if it proceeds to be fruitful, we'll, uh, we'll continue with five more and then continu- continue on from there. You know, we'd rather you, we'd rather you do five really well, very intentionally, very purposefully, uh, then to just do 25 all at once, just kind of halfway, you know. So uh, we'll start these in our city groups in a few weeks. So be on the lookout for more information. But what I do want you to be thinking about uh, are the, who are, are going to be those first five people uh, who, that you're praying for, uh, that you want to see God work in their heart. And so that said, we're going to dive back into the book of Philippians. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 2 today, so you, can get, you guys can go ahead and turn there. And just as a quick side note, uh, before we get into Philippians 2, this book as a whole has been so good for me personally. You know, I don't know what's been going on in your life, but this book over the past uh, few weeks for me has just been an anchor. Uh, you know, week after week, the Lord has reminded me of his incredible riches that are in his word. You know, if you're struggling or if you're in a hard season right now, I would encourage you to, to, maybe, to, to read the whole book. Uh, read it and reread through this book and just let it minister to your soul. Maybe even uh, listen to an audio version of this book. You know, try and read through it every week maybe or maybe even memorize part of it. You know, I bring that up because yet again, today's text in Philippians 2 has been such a good reminder of the Lord's goodness and the incredible truths that are found in the gospel. Today's text in Philippians 2, it draws out, it draws out our lowliness in God's uh, glory, it draws out that we're uh, spiritually bankrupt, but yet God is infinitely rich. It draws out that we're, if we're to be happy, we're to first mourn. That if we're to save our life, we must first lose it. Ultimately, we're going to see the incredible humility of Christ. So that being said, our main idea today 
is joy is found in the humility of Christ. Joy is found in the humility of Christ. Uh, today's text, it includes a few verses uh, worth memorizing, often memorized, and also an incredible picture of God's grace. Known as, it's a famous Christ passage. Uh, th- this passage is central to the book of Philippians that puts the incredible mercies of God on display. And to divide our time, knowing that humility is kind of a central theme, uh, the, the three points we'll see today are, number one, humility drives unity. Uh, number two, humility builds up others. And number three, the humility of Christ. And before we get into the text, one thing I do want us to wrestle with here today are, uh, is this, this idea of humility. You know we, know, we know that humility is a central tenet, it's a central posture to the Christian faith and to the gospel. In fact, some have said that maybe even Paul, uh, this idea of humility was birthed from Paul after the birth of the early church. You know, this, this was not common language. It was not commonly used prior to the church. You know, the concept was there in the Old Testament, but not that exact language. You know, I, I think it's fair to say most people in our culture want to be humble. Right? It's a generally well-received and often admired character trait and virtue, but it does get a little tricky because if you think you've got it, you probably don't have it if you think you have it. Uh, in essence, humility is a word that means to think it or judge ourselves with lowliness, which when we say that, I think we could say it's a bit strange in our culture. In fact, I would say humility uh, is countercultural. It's admired and cheered for while rooting against itself all at the same time. You know, our, our cultural te- culture tells us that we need to think we are the best. Our culture, culture tells us to, that we are the most important thing, that we need to uh, rise to the top, that we need to take care of me first. I, th- I mean, we see this. If you go to any playground, if any kid gets a new toy, you see the me first mentality come out. I mean, it comes roaring out. It's saying, me first, me first, me first. You know, and the thing is this, is, this is at every age and it's in every culture. You know, I'll never forget uh, when we first landed in Central Asia uh, several years back in a country uh, we had committed to live in. Me and my wife and our one-year-old at the time, we, we knew nothing about this place other than what we'd seen on the internet uh, that was a, a tad embellished, um, actually was very embellished. Uh, and as soon as we get off the plane, we get our stroller. I don't know if you guys have kind of gone through an airport with a stroller and a, and a, and a small child, but uh, Addie, she was uh, one at the time. We had our carry-ons, uh, our personal items. Everything was kind of piled up on top of the stroller. Uh, it's kind of like a massive mountain, and Addie was kind of buried underneath it uh, in the stroller. And we get off the plane, and we're the first ones off, and we kind of sit back. We kind of give ourselves a few feet uh, between us and the person in front of us, and, and then people just start darting in front of us, cutting in line. We thought we were in the front of the line, uh, but apparently there was no line at all. Uh, we quickly found out that in this specific country, if there is space, you just go ahead and take it. Like that's, that's the rule. If there's space, you take it. And so it was a mad rush, pushing and shoving to get through security. And we we're like, where in the world have we moved to? We, I mean, we were right off the plane. I mean, to get through the line uh, first, it was like, kind of like cattle herding through the line. It would, have, it would have been a CDC nightmare today. I mean, it would have been a complete nightmare. There was no such thing as personal space. And so we kind of like sat back and observed everything that was happening. And we kind of watched the first 20 people go through and, and, and kind of zip by us. And might I remind you, we've been traveling for about 30 hours with a one-year-old. And so mommy and daddy's patience was a little uh, slim. And my wife, who is a natural-born competitor at heart, she looked at me and said, uh, Oh no, we are getting through this line. Like this is going to happen. 
And so I'm like, okay, well, if you're game, I'm game. Let's, let's do this. Uh, we jump right in uh, with our massive stroller with the mountain of luggage on top, and we try to bulldoze over people, kind of nosing our way through, but clearly beginners. We didn't make it through. Um, we were, I was reminded of the Bible verse, the last shall be first, or the first shall be last. Uh, and that was us. We were dead last to get out. When I think about that situation, um, I can't help but think it feels a bit like our me first culture, you know, trying to do whatever it takes to cut in front of people, to get to the front of the line, uh, to climb the ladder uh, by always putting ourselves first. We see this in politics, or we see it in sports, we see it in jobs, in school, in relationships, it's everywhere. But as we'll see in the church, as followers of Christ, we have a different responsibility. In essence, it should be the exact opposite. We should be eager to let others go before us. You know, as our passage today in verse 3 uh, says, uh, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. And so that said, uh, if you remember from the end of last week, at the end of chapter 1, uh, Paul was talking about the outworking of a life worthy of the gospel as, as, kind of, as, as kingdom citizens, so knowing that we have a kingdom citizenship. And then in chapter 2, for today, he continues his thought, but more specifically with the church as followers of Christ. And so uh, what, <clears throat> this is what Paul says in the first four verses of chapter 2. Well, we'll see our first two points today. And this, these first four verses, in the original language, it was all one verse. It was, it was all one sentence, uh, I guess it would be better to say. So uh, look, at, look at verse 1, starting in chapter 2. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so let's just break this down for a second. So we can kind of wrap our heads around this, okay? Now, as I said, this is all one sentence in the original thing, which was language, it was one thought. Uh, and it puts humility at the hinge uh, in verses 3 and 4. And in verses 1 and 2, we see this idea of, of unity that, that we'll draw out in just a second, where we see a unity in the church that flows out of humility, which is why our first point is, number one, humility drives unity. We could say in order to find unity, whether it be in the church, uh, with friends, in a marriage, in our country, wherever it is, we see that in order to find unity, humility is essential. If humility is lacking, disunity will certainly follow. Yeah, I think it's fair to say if you see disunity, if you inspect it close enough, when you look at disunity, you'll probably also find pride. When we look at these first two verses, you know, I, th I think it's helpful for us to start with the command at the very beginning of verse 2, it, it, which is, complete my joy. That's the command in our text. Paul was uh, writing to the Philippi church, asking them to help complete his joy. We know that Paul had joy. It was first in Christ. He talked about joy and rejoicing over and over again. And here, he, he first tells the church, he tells the church to complete his joy, which uh, for some reason, whenever I hear this and think of this, I think of the, the famous movie, movie line, you complete me which I don't know if that makes you think of Jerry Maguire or Austin, uh, Austin uh, Powers, or maybe for the younger crowd, you think of Sloth from the Ice Age. I don't know which one it may be. Uh, but that's not what Paul's getting at. Right? This is very different. Because we know that only Jesus complete, completes Paul. But he's saying the Philippian church can complete his joy. The Philippian church can bring him more joy, having a fuller joy. 
And so we need to ask us a few simple questions here. There's two questions. First, how, how will this happen? Like, how will the Philippian church complete Paul's joy? And then secondly, what's the motivation for this? So first, how will the Philippi church complete Paul's joy? Well, we'll see it in verse 2. Paul says, uh, starting in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so again, uh, here we see this idea of unity. Paul found more joy by knowing that the Philippian church was unified. You know, what's interesting here is that Paul starts with this phrase, same mind, and at the very end, he uses the phrase, one mind, saying one mind. You know, Pastor Kent Hughes, uh, he points out here that both speak of the intent and a unified purpose, is a unified goal. And so what's the unified purpose and goal? Well, up to this point in the letter, all through chapter 1, as we've seen, the unified purpose is the gospel. He's brought up the phrase gospel or the word gospel five times already to this point. Paul's very life is centered around Jesus and his work. And his life is centered around advancing the good news of Jesus. And when Paul says one mind, he doesn't mean we're all the same. Obviously, there needs to be a like-mindedness in biblical truth, also knowing we need to make sure we all hold God's word as our ultimate source of truth. But the, but the beauty of the church, as Paul draws out specifically in 1 Corinthians 12, is that we are all many members, but with different gifts, different motivations, and different burdens, but all with one mind, going in the same direction towards the faith of the gospel uh, and with the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so uh, this, is, this is what's important here. Right? Unity, the unity of the Philippi church, it hinged on a unified direction that was based on the faith of the gospel. You know, the unity of the church did not hinge on personal preferences. It did not hinge on unique giftings. It did not hinge on what they had or what they did not have. No, the unity of the church was found in the authority of God's word. It was held together uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit and the in, and it was unified, moving towards the direction of the faith of the gospel. And what I want to draw out here is that this unity, it all happens because of verse 1. Right? The church can be unified because of verse 1. And look what it says. There's four things here. This is what it says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy. And then he goes on in verse 2 to say, complete my joy. So if these things are here, uh, this, this, this will happen. So, so to say it again, unity in the church happens when we can find uh, encouraged, when we're encouraged in Christ. When we each come to Christ who holds us and sustains us. We find unity when we find comfort from love, the second one, right, from the love of Christ. When we each know and experience the love of Jesus, remembering that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Right? Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Just, just sit in that for a second. And the unifying power of this, that nothing can separate you. Nothing can separate you. Nothing can separate your brother or sister in Christ from the love of God. If you're in Christ, you cannot be separated. Right? So when you're mad or bitter or angry at a fellow Christian, guess what? The God of the universe is not. They are still completely and fully loved by God. Because God's love is steadfast. God's love is secure. God's love never leaves us or forsake us. And it also never leaves or forsake your brother or sister in Christ. And so when we each find comfort from this and nothing else, we can all walk in unity. You can look at your brother or sister uh, that holds different opinions, 
different preferences and different burdens and still say, I love you as my brother and sister in Christ because nothing has separated you from the love of God. You are in Christ, you are loved by God, and you are comforted by his, his love. And because of that, praise God, we can be unified. And then con- continue to draw out verse 1. When we're participating with the Spirit of God, as it says in verse 1, which means to be guided by his Spirit, to be in the Spirit's indwelling help. You know, when two different brothers or sisters in Christ have different uh, opinions, different preferences, and different life backgrounds, uh, and yet have the same indwelling spirit and that same spirit, it burdens and pushes two completely different people to two different things while both seeking to glorify God, we can both say to each other, we're both guided by his word. We're both participating in the spirit. And because of that, we can both say to one another, praise God, right? We're unified. Our decisions and external differences do not unify us. Participating in the Spirit's help, that is what unifies us. As we'll see, in order to get there, great humility is required. Because pride, it will not get us there. Pride will count, uh, will point to our life. Pride will point to our decisions, our perspectives as right or wrong. And in pride, we'll seek to protect ourselves and our reputation. And we'll also ignore the Spirit's work in someone's life. And then we also see in verse 1 that the fourth one, it says, when there is affection and sympathy. And unity can also be found here. All right, when we look at the opposite of this I, think this, I think it makes more sense. Because what is not unifying? Well, <laughs> coldness and harshness and no compassion. When two people disagree or are disunified, uh, being mean or cold or harsh, that certainly does not help. I mean, just a little marriage uh, or relationship tip here. I don't know if this has happened to you recently, um, but I know if, if I know of two sinners coming together in marriage, um, I, <laughs> this is probably highly likely. And so that said, just, just listen to me. If your spouse uh, or your friend uh, says something cold or harsh, replying back with the same or more cold, harsh words, it doesn't help. It creates disunity, not unity. And rather, on the flip side, Replying with grace and kindness, affection and sympathy, as Paul says, that helps us to move towards unity. You know, growing up, my wife, Kelly, uh, she was made to memorize Proverbs 15.1 as a kid. And by default, I kind of married into it and it stuck with me, uh, which as a side note, this is why I think we'll do whatever it takes to help our kids memorize God's word. Um, But this is what Proverbs 15.1 says. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And we walk in affection and sympathy, as verse 1 says. It drives towards unity. Now, as we've seen, with each of the phrases in verse 1, great humility is required at every turn. You know, in the heat of the moment, uh, when you've been wronged, this can be really hard. But this will prove so helpful in marriages, in relationships, and just in disunity in general. And so hear this, brothers and sisters, New City Church, if Christ is in you, if Christ is in Me, when our hearts are seeking the love of Christ, if our focus is Jesus and being guided by his spirit and his word, if we grasp the overwhelming grace of God, our church will be incredibly unified. And as I've said over and over again, and see again here in verses 3 and 4, humility is essential for unity. Pride drives disunity and humility drives unity. This is essential for the church as a whole. 
But it's also, uh, we'll see in our next point, it's also in our relationships with one another. Which brings us to our second point, number two. Humility builds up others. And I read this week um, something that a, a conductor of a symphony was asked. And you know, I, don't, I don't know anything about uh, leading a symphony. Clueless. But this made sense to me, so it, hopefully it'll help all of us. The conductor was asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play? And the conductor responded without hesitation. He said, second violin. And then he asked, I can find, and then he, he continued to say, I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm, that's a problem. Because he said next, if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. And this is what I'm getting at. Being second fiddle, being a, a, a person that considers the preferences of others uh, as an essential element to the Christian faith, uh, this is essential, and it takes great humility to do this, which is what Paul gets at in verses 3 and 4, which say, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so in a, in a me-centered world uh, that has a tendency to shove and fight and get to the front of a line or to, or to be first or to be the best, this idea of putting someone else's interest before yourself, counting others more significant than yourself, as it says in verse 3, again, this is countercultural. It's, a counter, it's countercultural today, but maybe even it was more so during Paul's day. You know, I mentioned this briefly earlier, but in, in Greek literature, where, uh, where Paul wrote this letter, humility and lowliness, those words, those phrases, they were not often used. And when they were used, it was seen as derogatory. It was, it was showing weakness. It was, uh, it, was, it was shameful lowliness. And so Paul is taking this idea of lowliness, what was uh, derogatory in their culture, and promoting it as a positive Christian virtue. And so in verse 3, when Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, some translations say it says, says vainglory at the end. But when Paul is saying this, says this, he's contrasting it from their current culture that innately promotes themselves. Saying, don't do that, right? That's vain. Uh, that's empty. There's no glory in promoting yourself. When we climb the ladder of self-promotion uh, for our own glory, Paul is essentially saying, we're climbing up the wrong ladder. If you're going up for, for self-glory, you're on the wrong ladder. We could, we could say this. All self-glory is vainglory. All self-glory is vainglory. But rather, in contrast, the ladder that leans on Christ are the steps of humility. The ladder that seeks Christ's glory, going up the ladder to Christ, puts others before ourselves. We see this uh, play out in so many ways. Right, in marriages, and relationships, and uh, what we're striving for. And so we're going to spend a lot of time here in verses 3 and 4 and just drawing out some super practical and some tangible ways uh, and put some flesh on this idea. For example, when I, uh, when I think of my own marriage and also in my own personal relationships, maybe, maybe you can really relate with this. Uh, when disagreements and disunity come, you know, it's, typical, it's typically when one person or both parties are putting their own interest above, their others, above the others. And, and by no means am I saying that this is the golden bullet for every marriage uh, uh, strife or problem. Uh, but these two verses in verse 3 and 4, if these are put to heart, into practice, that would really help significantly. You know, so just rephrasing it to say, count your spouse or your friend as more significant than yourself. 
Count your kids or your coworkers as more significant than yourself. To say the opposite of this, we could say don't promote yourself. Rather, promote others. Before you promote yourself, promote your husband or your wife or your friends or your coworkers or your kids before you promote yourself. You know, in our relationships, when we, when we do this or if we do this, you know, just have this kind of practice of a mutual serving of one another, a lot of problems would be resolved. And just taking these two verses, verses three and four, a step further, you know, look, kind of looking at all realms of life. When we think about this from a leadership perspective, I mean, maybe in, this, maybe in church, maybe at work, uh, maybe in school, in the family, or in community. When we, when we look at this, uh, this really makes no sense in an American ideal of leadership. When we think of good leadership, the thought that often comes to mind is, is often the mentality to kind of rally and command the troops, right? Charge the hill, be vocal, be out front, be visible, be the decision maker, which, you know, in some ways, this is all really good. Because yes, leaders need to reject passivity. We, leaders need to lead courageously. Leaders need to accept responsibility. But then uh, what often is forgotten is that leaders also need to walk in humility. Which is, uh, as our verse shows us, means considering those you lead more significant than yourself. So again, sticking with the marriage theme here. Husbands, uh, God has called you to lead your wife and your family. Right, this is clear in God's word. And so practically, what does it look like to lead your wife? It does not mean uh, that you make every decisive decision on your own, thinking I'm the leader, whatever I say goes. No, rather what it means is you need to make decisions for your wife and your family, but while taking her thoughts and her preferences into account. Because as verse 3 points out, you must consider her more significant than yourself. And then together, you make a decision. And wives, you need to do the same. What are your husband's thoughts and your husband's preferences? And this isn't always the case, but just kind of as a, uh, as, a, as a general principle, husbands, if your wife is not on board with a decision, uh, you probably made the wrong decision. <laughs> you know, if there's a toss-up uh, and you cannot agree, this is when you get others around you, uh, you love and trust around you to help. Because, you know, this idea of considering others more significant to yourself, this is, this is foundational to the Christian life. It's not only for our good, but it's also for the good of others, and it builds up the church. And so uh, looking at this from a serving perspective, you know, this, is, uh, this idea is one of, of many reasons why serving for us on a Sunday morning uh, is so important. And, and, and throughout the weeks, in, our, in all the ways that we serve, uh, there, this is a major part of discipleship in our church. You know, everybody that comes in and serves, uh, we're all doing it for many different reasons. You know, obviously we have basic tangible needs uh, that, you know, that we have on Sundays just to have uh, our gathering. But as far as I'm concerned in our church, we will always have more needs, uh, serving needs and opportunities uh, than we have people. Because this is just part of discipleship. You know, something we say here often is that we make disciples here at New City Church by engaging our head, our heart, and our hands. And serving uh, for us at our church is, is, is one outworking of how we engage our hands in discipleship. And so serving our church in a regular and in a systematic way is one of the ways that we tangibly can grow in Christ-likeness. It helps us to practically see how we can grow in lowliness and in humility. And this is what I mean, Okay. Uh, if you want to tangibly grow in humility, go out to the parking lot on a hot summer day in 95 degree weather and park cars or when a, a torrential downpour, uh, which happens often here, uh, and go park cars. 
or wake up early on a Sunday and, and come help set up, or, uh, or one of our more pressing needs right now, uh, if you're able, uh, go serve in our kids' ministry. I guarantee it. If you need to grow in humility uh, and patience, uh, putting a three-year-old's needs above your own will certainly help you get there, okay? Uh, you will grow, I, I promise. It's really hard, but it's good. You know, we need to regularly and systematically put things in our lives that lead us towards humility. You know, our, our, our natural bent is not humility. Our natural bent is pride. And just a, just a few things, because as we think about all these different categories, a few things to help inspect uh, our lives, kind of a, a few indicators, you know, kind of like a check engine light that comes on in our life. You know, a good test in a marriage or a close relationship uh, is to inspect the level of service that's happening. If both the husband and the wife, or maybe even a, a friendship relationship, are mutually serving one another, that's evidence of, of grace and healthy fruit. And here's, here's another test. You know, another simple diagnostic test for humility in our lives is to inspect who and what we're praying for. Do your prayers dominate your life? Or are they more others-focused? You know, may we, may we church, may we grow in humility and count others as more significant than ourselves because as we'll see, this is, this is not just a good virtue. No, rather, this is what Jesus has done for us. We don't, we don't do all of this. We don't talk about humility just for the sake of being humble because that won't last very long. It may, if we just say, go be humble, it may last for an afternoon or a few days. Uh, we can't, it's hard to just flip the switch and be humble. Rather, we need a completely new heart. We need a new direction, uh, which will cause humility to continue to grow in our lives. Uh, to, uh, in order to, for that to happen, we have to regularly come to the one that we follow by regularly coming to Jesus, who by nature is humility. Jesus, the one we follow, is humble. He's not just humble, but as we'll see, Jesus was humiliated. We can walk in humility because, in essence, Jesus is humility. The gospel is the good news about number three, the humility of Christ. You know, the very heart of the gospel is the humility of Jesus. And, and as, we'll, as, as we go through these next several verses, we'll see just how Jesus humbled himself, where if there is no humility of Jesus, there is no good news. There is no gospel if there is no humility. You know, last week I brought up this idea of Disney World. When I think of Disney, uh, I think of, you know, Magic Kingdom and the, the massive castle, uh, Cinderella's castle right there in the center, center. And you've kind of got Goofy and Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse and all the characters out front uh, singing and dancing. And everyone's kind of sitting back on that, uh, in that little open circle. Uh, dads are kind of holding kids on their shoulders. You know, all the little girls are uh, in their princess dresses and music's playing and they're all spinning around and they're holding their little $8 balloons. And the $25 uh, spinning toys that are going to break as soon as they get to the car. You know, the, 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 kids funnel cake, the kids are eating funnel cake and another kid's holding uh, his $10 popsicle that's kind of melting all the way down his arm. And every night, everyone kind of goes out and, and gathers uh, in this big open space and fireworks are kind of going off over the kingdom. And it's just magical, right? It's, it's magic kingdom. But just imagine with me a similar picture but this is not Cinderella's castle. Uh, this is, this is Jesus' castle, okay? But 
Obviously, it's better, okay? It's just better. Uh, and you know, here at Jesus' castle, the popsicles, they don't melt. Uh, the kids, don't, they don't cry and complain. And your feet, praise the Lord, they never hurt, right? Can I get an amen, right? I mean, they never hurt. And at the top of the castle, at the peak of the castle, at the highest window is Jesus the King. And he's united. He's in perfect harmony with God the Father. And then because of his incredible love and mercy, we begin to see how he begins to walk down the steps of the castle, step by step, level by level, floor by floor, slowly walking down the steps and giving up and making sacrifices at every level. But what's interesting is he's got tears coming out of his eyes. Tears because he's leaving God the Father, who he loves, he was in perfect harmony with, but also tears of love for his people as, as he looks out at them, knowing what he's doing. And at every level, as he walks down the steps, sticking his head slightly out the window, as we see his tears, seeing both his empathy and his warmth, knowing he's walking in obedience, Jesus is doing what is right by coming down the steps of the castle. And all to see him just disappear into uh, the very dungeon of the castle, to the darkest place possible, where the music, where the laughter can't be heard, where the funnel cakes uh, can't be tasted, where the candy apples are, are, no, are nowhere to be found, where the fireworks and the smiling faces are just not existing. And where Jesus, in essence, gets tied up, locked up, and he gets put into a black hole of turmoil and strife and completely humiliated while everyone's watching. So as I read through these last several verses, I want you to pay close attention to everything that Jesus is giving up. Just imagine Jesus, as I kind of read through these verses, uh, giving up the throne at the top of his castle, walking down the stair steps of his throne into the darkest place possible. So follow along with me, starting in verse 5, as we picture Jesus kind of walking down the steps from his throne. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So did you I'll just, just catch this in verse five? He says, have this mind. It's kind of like saying, have this thought process. So let me, let me spell this out again for us. Right, Jesus, he was in the form of God, but he thought, I've got the form of God, but, but I can't grasp that. So I'm going to take a step down off the throne, not counting himself as equal to God. No, he, doesn't, he, he is equal, but he doesn't count himself as equal with God. So what did he do? He went down the next level of the castle, and he emptied himself, and he became a servant. And then, taking another, another step down, it says Jesus uh, was born a human. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but babies are pretty helpless, okay? They just are. Um, Jesus had the form of God and he became a human. And just like you and I, he was first a baby. And just like you and me, Jesus was a helpless baby uh, that needed to have his dirty diaper changed. Jesus could not feed himself. Uh, he, he could not walk or talk. Jesus, who was in the form of a holy God, he completely humbled himself, became completely dependent on the, in the hands of sinful people and to, to feed him and to burp him and to put him into bed and to carry him around and to change his diaper. And then to continue down the steps of the castle, to continue to step down in humility, it says not only was he a servant, a human, a baby, but it says he was obedient to the point of death. 
And so Jesus, a holy God, came down, and in obedience, Jesus died. Listen, if you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, hear the gospel today. Hear the good news. Jesus was God. He came down to earth, and he lived the life that you and I could not live. This is the bad news. He did it because this is the bad news. You and I, we disobeyed God. We did not have perfect obedience to God. And because of our sin nature, we cannot perfectly obey God. But rather, because of Jesus' kindness, God sent Jesus to be born a baby. And did you catch this? In verse 8, it says, he was obedient to the point of death. Jesus was perfectly obedient. And in his obedience, it led him to his death. And here's what's fascinating about this. Because in our disobedience, we deserved death. But in Jesus' obedience, he took our death. That's the gospel. Jesus died in our place. Jesus lived the life that you and I could not live. And then Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. Christian, you need to hear that today. Right? If you need to hear that. If you're not a Christian, hear that. You need this today. I need this today because my sin, my disobedience deserves death. But in Jesus' Jesus' obedience, he took what we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God for our sin, but Jesus took that wrath instead of us. And this is where the incredible unity of the gospel plays out for us in the church. Because listen, if your brother or your sister in Christ, if your husband or wife or friend who you are a co-laborer with in the gospel, if they are in Christ, we have this incredibly unifying truth because just like you, being of one mind and of same mind, you both have been spared from the wrath of God because of Jesus' dying death. But as we'll see, it doesn't stop there. The rabbit hole, it continues to keep going, going deeper, taking another step down, down the castle. And he steps into the darkest, Jesus steps into the most humiliating place of the castle because Jesus did not just die. Jesus died a humiliating death. The most humiliating thing that could have been done to Jesus was done. When someone died on the cross, it was a, it was a way to humiliate them in front of the world. It was a form of mockery. And so what we need to see here is that Jesus did not just walk in humility. Jesus walked into humiliation. In the gospel, bask in what Jesus has done. Hear this. Jesus was humiliated on your behalf. Jesus walked into your humiliation. humiliation. He walked into my humiliation, and he took it for us. Jesus was on top of the castle. Jesus was sitting as king, and Jesus walked down the steps, step by step by step of his castle, humbling himself every step of the way, and he stepped right into the dungeon of humiliation. And you know why he did that? He did it because of his love for you and for me and for the entire world. Jesus was not just humbled on our behalf. Jesus was humiliated on our behalf. And look what God does in our last three verses because of Jesus' humiliation. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so what does Jesus do? So what does God do? He sent Jesus to the cross in humility, ultimately humiliating him by dying on the cross. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not stay in his humiliation. No, Jesus defeated sin and death and was then, as verse 9 said, he was highly exalted. 
And he was bestowed on him the highest name possible. Jesus was given the greatest name possible. It says he was given the name that was above every other name. Jesus went from extreme humiliation at the cross to extreme exaltation that was given to him by God the Father. Jesus was humiliated at the cross and then he was exalted by defeating the cross. And what did he do? He continues to go. We see in verse 10 11, this is what verse 10 11 say. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was humiliated at the cross for us on our behalf. Jesus was lowered into humiliation at the cross so that we could bow down and exalt him and be with him in his eternal exaltation. Jesus was humiliated for us so we could be exalted with him, so we could worship him and be with him in his glory and in his exaltation. So now our response to Jesus is to bow down before God in humility and in lowliness and to exalt Jesus as God. And so get this. When we think back to verses three and four that we've already covered today, let's say this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. When we read that and try to live that out, we have to live it out through the lens of the gospel. Because what we must understand is that if we walk in lowliness and we walk in humility apart from the gospel, we have no confidence and dare I say we actually have no joy. We're simply just self-deprecating because there's no joy in human loneliness. That's essentially just a form of depression. But rather, humility in the gospel through a gospel lens, it understands our human lowliness. It understands our brokenness and our sin. We get and understand, as Paul said, we are the chief of sinners, that my sin is the worst of all sin, and in and out of my own strength, I have absolutely no confidence. But a humility that is found in the gospel does not stay in our human lowliness. Rather, we are brought low in our sin, But only through the cross and only through Jesus Christ are we exalted with confidence. A gospel humility is not confident in ourselves and does not find joy in ourselves. No, a gospel humility realizes that we are weak, but yet God is strong. A gospel humility realizes we are poor and needy, but yet God is full of rich and mercy and kindness and he's full of grace. We can walk in humility because we know our very life is not our own. And we can also walk in extreme confidence because we also know that our life is not our own, but rather we are owned by the God of the universe. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ crucified that did not stay in the dungeon of despair, but rather rose in exaltation. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Jesus rose from the dungeon of despair and humiliation and was exalted to, the, to sit next to God the Father at the top of the castle so that at, the, at his very name, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So to close out our time here today, brothers and sisters, we can walk in humility. We can walk in lowliness and be incredibly unified for the faith of the gospel because when we're unified towards a gospel faith, we're inching closer to the day when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.
every time we gather, right? every time uh, we're with one another in good seasons, in fruitful seasons, and in hard seasons, every morning and every hour of every day, we're given new mercies and new graces and new riches by the God who sits at the top of the throne. Because as Christ followers, we're essentially sitting with our King at the top of his castle. We're exalted with him because he was humiliated on our behalf. And as we sit at the top of the castle with God, exalted with Jesus, knowing that we are with God, we can't have an ounce of pride because we know that the only reason we're with him at the top of the castle is because Jesus came down into the dungeon of our humiliation and he rescued us. Brothers and sisters, we can serve our spouse. We can uh, serve your friends and your roommates in the church, walk in humility, and we can count others more significant than ourselves because we can remember that Jesus has rescued us out of the dungeon of our humiliation. Because he's counted you and I, he's counted God's ultimate glory. <laughs> Jesus counted you and I and God's glory as more significant than himself. And he died for us. And he rose from the grave. New City Church, I hope that you've seen today there is great joy that is found in the humility of Christ. Let's pray. God, you're good. You came down for us. You came down on our behalf. You came down into our dungeon of despair to, so that we could bow down and worship you and be with you. Father, may we walk in humility knowing that you walked into our humiliation. Father, we need you. You are good. You are loving. You are gracious. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.